phone loaded up here. I want to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 23. Luke, chapter 23. Let me ask you a question. I was thinking about this this week. What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? Specifically knowing in advance that it was dangerous. I've done a lot of dangerous things accidentally. You know, most of my childhood, teenage years spent, was spent doing dangerous things that I didn't know were dangerous. But what's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? I was, I was thinking about how wide a variance of answers would be in this room. Some of you have fought in war. Some of you have been engaged in military combat. Uh, your answers are going to be far more extreme than others. You know, some of you have, have eaten a second piece of bacon today. And that's the most dangerous thing you've done in a while. Uh, there's a huge divergence in answers. I was thinking about this because I was studying two particular groups of people in the Old Testament who had probably the most dangerous jobs in the Old Testament. Not probably. They had the most dangerous jobs in the Old Testament. These would have been, for different reasons, dangerous, difficult jobs. These people would have been considered sort of special forces equivalents because of their dangerous jobs. And the first group of people I'm thinking about are the high priests. That job itself was elite. There were a lot of priests, but only one high priest. And the most dangerous part of his job involved his once a year entrance into the Holy of Holies, into the innermost part of God's temple. Not only was the Ark of the Covenant there, and there are plenty of examples in scripture of people dying when they come into contact with the Ark of the Covenant. And we, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you know. Uh, not only was the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies, but in addition to that, God's manifest presence was there. So let me read to you a summary of what this service would look like of this high priest as he would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. Let me read this from a man named Ray. Dillard, a, a Bible scholar, wrote a really helpful summary of what it was like for him, this high priest, to enter into the Holy of Holies. A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion, taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, he bathed head to toe and dressed in pure, unstained white linen. He went in three times. And each time, he would have to cross through a very thick curtain uh, separated, separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Uh, one detail I learned this week been reading this a long time, really didn't know this, that that three-foot-thick veil was actually a bunch of fabrics that were, that, were, that were overlapping in such a way so that when the priest would have to press through, he'd actually kind of have to step through almost a bit of a maze to get through that three-foot-thick veil. When he went into the Holy of Holies, he offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay penalty for his own sins. And after that, he came out and bathed completely again. And new white linen was put on him. And then he went in again. And this time, sacrificing for the sins of the priests. But that's not all. He would come out a third time, and he bathed again from head to toe. 
And they dressed him in brand new pure linen. And he went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of all the people. This was all done in public. The temple was crowded and those in attendance watched closely. There was a thin screen and he bathed behind it. But the people were present. They saw him bathe. They saw him dress and go in and come back out. And he was their representative before God. And they were cheering him on in their hearts. They were very concerned that he did everything properly. So this was one of the most dangerous jobs you could draw in the Old Testament. And it was dangerous because God is dangerous. It was dangerous because God is dangerous. And God is dangerous because he is holy. He is absolutely pure. He is perfectly just, unwaveringly, unwaveringly clean and righteous. He is dangerous because he is all those things and we are none of those things. God is dangerous because he is holy and we are sinful. And if you're just hearing this for the first time, you may think, well, that just sounds really harsh. God is dangerous. Well, I tell you, I, I, just, I just wouldn't want to be involved in a religion that wasn't dangerous. You know, I just wouldn't want to be involved in a, in a ministry that, that, that wasn't high stakes. I don't, I don't need more easy things in my life. You know what I mean? I, I, don't, I don't need more things built for my comfort. I need the truth. And this sounds like the truth to me. God is dangerous because he is holy and I am not. Now, this may seem harsh and difficult, but listen to the second job. The second job that I was thinking of as being one of the most dangerous jobs in the Old Testament. I think this was the most dangerous job in the Old Testament. And that was the job of prophet. R.C. Sproul says of the job of prophet, The record of the lives of the prophets reads like a history of martyrs. Their history sounds like a casualty report from the 3rd Division in World War II. The expectancy, the life expectancy of a prophet was that of a marine lieutenant in combat. If you were an Old Testament prophet, I don't think you could get insurance. <laughs> Health or life, I don't think you could get it. Because it was so understood that to be called an Old Testament prophet, to be called into the Old Testament prophetic ministry, was essentially a call to die a violent death. Listen to some of the ways that Old Testament prophets have died. Some uh, head cut off, tortured to death, stoned to death, sawn in half. Now, here's where I think things get really interesting. So let's hold these two jobs up together of prophet and priest. Both jobs were dangerous in one common way because of a basic tension between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. Right. Both jobs were dangerous because of that basic tension. The priest, that job was dangerous because he was approaching God as a representative for man. And why was the prophetic job dangerous? Because he was representing God before man. To be a priest was to be dangerous because you were approaching God on the behalf of men. To be a prophet was dangerous because you were approaching men on behalf of God. Now, who generally fared better? Let's do a body count. Who generally fared better? How many high priests were struck dead because they approached a holy God wrongly? And how many pro prophets were struck dead because they approached a sinful man 
with the truth. The truth is, God is faithful in his holiness. Man is fickle in his sinfulness. There's much, much, much more mercy in the holiness of God than you'll ever find in the sinfulness of man. The next time you feel like it would just be easier to compromise and turn your back on God's holiness so that you can win the favor of man, just remember that's a terrible investment decision. Because even in his righteous, pure, dangerous holiness, God is faithful. And whatever man would offer you, they are fickle. It is far more dangerous to come to man as a representative from God than it is to come to God as a representative from man. Because man is the problem. Now, I say all that as a lead-in to what we see in our text today. So hopefully you've turned there. Luke 23, verse 44. Keep those categories in your head as we work through this text. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So this is a glimpse of Jesus on the cross. And here's the question. Is he the prophet or is he the priest? And of course the answer is, He's both. In this moment, he's both. He's both the prophet and the priest. Let's think of Jesus in his prophetic role for a minute. Back in Luke 13, Jesus says to the city of Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing so there is a sense when G- that Jesus came from God to bring a message to man. And in this way, he experienced what all prophets experience in the Old Testament. Resistance, rejection, ridicule, and many of them ultimately violent death. He is also a priest in this text. He is also not only speaking to man from God but offering himself up on behalf of man to God. Jesus is bringing together in this passage, and has brought this together, I just haven't pointed it out, but as we've worked our way through Luke, this has happened a number of times, Jesus is bringing together in this passage and in many other passages, the three offices that God used to lead his people through redemptive history, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, we won't talk much about Jesus as king in this passage, but we will simply say that we've been studying what the thief has said when he said, what did the thief say to Jesus as he was dying? Right before Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, what did the the thief say? He said, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. There's a sense in which Jesus is ushering in a whole new perspective of authority and power in this very moment. This is, in some respects, a coronation of a king in a new kind of kingdom. The kings and the queens of this new kingdom will become leaders and rulers and great when they embrace humility and brokenness and sacrifice. We'll talk more about that, I'm sure, in the future. But let's talk mostly about Jesus as prophet and priest in this passage. As I said before, all the danger in both of those jobs has to do with the collision of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. This tension between God's holiness and man's sinfulness is really where all the violence in the Old Testament occurs. You know, there are these particularly dangerous stretches of highway where, where there's just more than their fair share of crosses and memorials, right? It's, just, it's a dangerous stretch. Back in, the, back in the day, years ago, they would call these dangerous stretches, you know, dead man's curve. You know, this intersection, we had a dangerous intersection in my hometown, and you could, you could just, just know there was going to be a wreck here every, every couple of days almost. This intersection between God's holiness and man's sinfulness, and there's a lot of carnage at that intersection. And Jesus, operating as both prophet and priest, is displaying all of that carnage and violence and death and conflict on the cross, first as a prophet. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Humanly speaking, this is why Jesus is on the cross. Jesus came as a messenger of God to man. And he was, of course, the messenger from God to man. And humanly speaking, the reason why he is on the cross in our text is because he brought a painful message to hard-hearted people. Jesus says plainly in John 7, 7, The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And that's exactly what Jesus did in his ministry. He came as the messenger from God to testify to the world, and he did so indiscriminately. In Matthew eleven twenty, Jesus had just performed great works in many cities, and most of them did not repent. And it just says he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Jesus is coming in a ministry of prophetic truth. He tells the Pharisees that all their righteousness is like filthy rags. He walks into a culture like our culture that, that has a far less biblical view of divorce than they ought to and essentially through just a short teaching declares 99% of all the divorces that were happening at the time to be sin. He reframes adultery to include the heart. He reframes murder to include anger. He tells rich people to give more. He tells poor people to be happy. Jesus had a way where you would cheer him on as he prophetically undressed his enemies, your enemies, 
And then he would turn on you. (laughs) And he would start exposing your evil deeds. And then you would despise him. You cheer him on when it's pointed at everybody else. And then he starts talking to you about you. And there's an anger that begins to fryer up in your heart. Humanly speaking, that's why Jesus wound up on the cross. He is hanging between two criminals because the world considers his crimes unforgivable. He indiscriminately invades the darkness with light. The most dangerous thing you can do in this life is to indiscriminately invade the darkness with light. If you want to invade the liberal darkness with light, you can have a guest spot on Fox. If you want to invade the conservative darkness with light, you can have a guest spot on CNN. But if you want to invade the darkness indiscriminately, you will have a spot on a cross. The world will not tolerate this level of prophetic clarity. You know, the very first act of violence recorded in the Bible is related to this very thing. Listen to 1 John 3.12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why, humanly speaking, Jesus is on the cross. He turned the light of God's truth on everybody. And at the, just the right time, in just the right way, everybody turned on him. But this bloodlust is sort of like a gasoline fire. Have you ever tried to start a fire with gasoline and probably lost your eyebrows like, like I did? The thing about that is it just doesn't really take it. It, it, it ignites quickly and then it's gone. And this bloodlust against Jesus in this prophetic role kind of fires up quickly and then goes away. And you see that in the text. After he breathed his last, the centurion saw what had taken place. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds, the text says, that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Do you feel that kind of numb repentance, kind of, a, kind of an unregenerating repentance there? They look at this situation and say, how, how did we get here? What, what have we done? Where did this fury come from where we assembled as a mob to crucify the righteous one? How did this happen? Well, humanly speaking, this happened... Because of what the Bible says about our sin. Listen to John 3.16 through 20. John 3.16, typically not thought of as an extraordinarily prophetic passage. Listen very closely. Maybe you can get ahead of me. But listen very closely to the prophetic and the priestly in this passage. John 3.16 uh, 3, through 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. You know, I don't know the precise reason why when Jesus was crucified, the sun went dark. But I know that light is consistently represented in the scriptures as truth. Right? As truth and righteousness, just as it is in the text I just read in John three sixteen through 20. In a human sense, Jesus' offensiveness angered people at the right moment, angered enough people at the right moment, at the right place, to stir up a riot that led to his crucifixion. But you know, that passage in John, John 3.16 It has that prophetic edge that people loved the darkness. They were angry at the light. They killed the light. They killed the prophet bringing the light. But there's also a priestly message in, in that text. Did you hear it? The beginning of the text is talking about something completely different in a way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, this is this is me placing my hope on a sacrifice, on atonement. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He gave his only son as a sacrifice. Now we're pivoting toward the priestly. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes that this sacrifice is a substitutionary atonement for his sins, will not perish. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world's condemned already. God sent his son into the world to save the world. So the prophetic Jesus exposes and infuriates the darkness so much that they will crucify him. But only because the priestly Jesus allows it. And this is key. Jesus says with this prophetic edge at the beginning of John ten eighteen, this is prophetic, hard, grisly. No one takes my life from me. It just says that point blank. People have been trying to kill Jesus through the whole story. And he just says point blank, nobody takes my life from me. That's that priestly gristle. But then he says, with, that's a prophetic gristle. But then he says with this priestly resolve, he says, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down. But I lay it down. In a way, in a way, Jesus is crucified because he invades the dungeon of human depravity with this offensive spotlight and exposes the works of darkness. But in another way, Jesus is on the cross because he intends to redeem some of those hissing wretches in the dungeon from their darkness and into light and make them sons and daughters of God. In a human respect, he has offended enough people to wind up in the worst place on earth, the cross. In a non-human perspective, he has come to offer himself as the sacrifice to save those very people who tried to kill him. So maybe, 
maybe the sun went dark as a signal pointing to the battle taking place between light and darkness, maybe. But Luke gives us another detail that I'm less unsure about, that I'm more sure about. Listen to the text again. It was the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sunlights failed, the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. A curtain over three feet thick, individually layered, that separated the darkness of man from the light of God. In some respects, God had built out of his mercy this three-foot veil right in the middle of the dangerous intersection. Right? To signify and also to save man from their greatest problem, God is holy and they are not. This veil represented the reason for both occupations, the prophet and the priest, being so dangerous. This veil represented the separation between the two. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus offends you enough to want to kill him. And then he dies for you to save you from that sin. Jesus troubles your conscience enough to run from him. And then he lays down his life to redeem you from your running. Jesus is your prophet and Jesus is your priest. He is the light from God that shows you all of your darkness. And he is the lamb of God that takes away your sin. Jesus is your prophet. Jesus is your priest. Jesus tells you you are in danger before a holy God. Jesus makes a way for you to be in God's presence. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Paul says in Romans 3 that God put forth Jesus as a sacrifice to be received by faith. We could never and would never, it would be so unkind and unloving to tamper with the offensiveness of God's word. It would be so unloving to do that because you need light just like I need light. You need light a lot more than you need comfort. You need light a lot more than you need flattery. 
you are desperate for light. I am desperate for light. It would be so unkind to remove the prophetic edge from God's word because Jesus came. Part of the beauty of Jesus is his danger, is his offensiveness, is the gristle, is the manliness. But it would also be so unkind to withhold from people whose consciences have been stirred by the law of God. It would be so unkind to withhold from those people the second part of the story. And that is the very one who provokes you to anger because you are a sinner and God is righteous has come to die for you so that you could be made holy. Not so that you could just move on and ignore the prophetic message of God's word. Move on and ignore the difficult standards and demands. But that you could stand in the righteousness of Jesus. Pure and washed and clean. And enjoy the presence of God in a way you do not deserve. Jesus, when he says in Psalm, he he prays in, in this passage, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. I want to talk about some practical application. The first one is simply this. The great challenge of Christian community involves being appropriately prophetic and appropriately priestly. I think you've heard before that I don't totally buy into the introvert extrovert thing as a landing place. I buy into it as a starting place. But I don't buy into it as, I'm going to stay here because this is who I am. Because that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not, this is who I am and I will stay here. I think likewise, in the same way we talk about introvert and extrovert, we may talk about individuals who are more prophetic, more gristle than steak. Right? And we may talk about individuals who are more priestly. More caring, more sacrificial, more service-oriented. The great challenge of Christian community is to not let either of those categories of people decide that's just who they are and the rest of the world needs to adjust. The great challenge of the church is to become both of those things. Those of you who are so scared of conflict and confrontation, you need a little more gristle. Thank you for serving. Thank you for laying down your life. Thank you for being behind the scenes, caring. Thank you for praying. A little gristle wouldn't hurt anything. It will, of course, hurt. And that's why you don't do it, right? And those of you who are more programmed to the prophetic edge, you know what? There has to be a way where you can tell someone the truth and enter into their pain and walk with them in that pain. It has to be an incarnational expression of your clarity and your truth. You have to serve those who are hurting. You have to restore those who are caught in trespasses gently. You have to walk with one another and bear one another's burdens. So there is this sense in which Jesus not only offers us the salvation we so desperately deserve by bringing us light and bringing us love, But he also offers us a pattern for what it means to be a real human being, not a caricature that sits in your pre-wired personality and says, it's just me being me. Why don't you be Jesus? Why don't I be Jesus? Why don't we try to be like Jesus? 
the great challenge of Christian community may just boil down to whether or not we are committed to embodying and living out this gospel example that Jesus presents to us. Whether we will strive to be Jesus to one another in this respect as both a prophet and a priest. Whether we will tell people about their dire condition and need for a savior and then walk with them as they sort it all out. You know, in previous ministry experiences, we could see people who had lived their whole adult lives just to be, you know, 40, 30, 40, 50, 60 years as adults, not saved. And boy, a lot of bad stuff can get planted in a field over 40, 50 years. And what you do in those moments when someone is saved, their, their eyes are turned to, on and they see and they look at this life that they've built. They look at the way they parented. They look at their marriage. They look at their finances. They maybe look at their personal addictions and so on and so forth. Friends, it's really great to tell them that all that's wrong. But who's going to walk with these people and help them pull those weeds for the next five, six years? That's Jesus stuff. That's what it means to be like Christ. Not simply to declare with the spotlight, oh, this is a mess. But to declare faithfully, this is a mess, and I brought my plunger. <laughs> and I'm here for the long haul to walk with you. Friends, let me don't, I don't want to get lost in us too deeply before we just say, how wonderful is it to have a God like that? I hope that you feel that. I hope that I hope that you're aware of that. And if you don't feel it, it's not because it's not true. You know, God, pray, just pray to God right now in this message that you see both of those things. Yes, you're a mess, and there is a savior and a prophet who is with you to show you the mess and to help you clean the mess. Walk with him, sort it out. Let the body of Christ be both prophet and priest to you. But boy, the challenge of growing outside of our hard wiring to be both these things, it really has a way of creating a culture of humility. If everybody here commits to working on their weakness instead of excusing it, to bringing the truth of their weakness to the Savior who both shows you the weakness and helps you deal with it. That's the crazy thing. The other point of application, again from Psalm 31, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's the, that's the text he's quoting, Psalm 31. Father, into the, your hands I commit my spirit. The sentence right before that is, You take me out of the net they had hidden from me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O faithful Lord. So Jesus is on the cross. His last thing he says, Lord, into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus, an expert on the Psalms, is referencing the whole psalm, of course. And I encourage you to read it. I think we'll probably read it next week. You take me out of the net they had hidden for me. You are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O faithful Lord. And then into your hand I commit my spirit. 
The image here is of a bird caught in a net. And a man comes along and sees no need for this bird caught in this net to die. And so he reaches into the net to take hold of the bird. And it's at this point where things get really dangerous for that bird. All right? now, if you've ever done something like this, this is the point where the bird will hurt himself. Because the bird is caught. The bird is trapped. The bird has been tricked. And he can easily mistake his redeemer's hand as his attacker's hand. He can easily mistake the redemption of God as yet one more attempt to take his life. And if you've ever tried to free an animal, you know exactly what this is like. I had a dog that, well, my dog, Lindy, jumped on a piece of fishing tackle that I was fishing with and got this treble hook jammed in her stomach really deep kind of a large dog I laid on top of this dog and I'm forcing this hook out of her belly and she's freaking out because it hurts and then she runs away from me but not before the other half of the piece of lure gets stuck in my thumb so now my thumb is attached to a panicked dog by a treble hook and all I was trying to do is help her. But all she could see and feel and know was, I was just hurt. This must be more of that. There's this deep faithfulness that shows up in Jesus' ministry in this moment. That Jesus' heart in this moment. He had just been deeply wounded by God. And he'd just been entrapped in the net of man. And yet, his death is approaching. It's imminent. And rather than despise the Father, rather than, um, rather than resent the Father, he trusts that this final moment of death is deliverance. And that the hand that's come to redeem him is a kind and gracious hand. Again, the application is twofold. Number one, it is extraordinarily likely that someone in this room, through their own doing or through the maliciousness of others, find themselves in a net. They find themselves caught in a trap that maybe you created for yourself. Maybe you're experiencing the consequences of your own sin right now. You're in a net. God will reach in and withdraw you from that net. And you would really be well advised to hold still and not fight against that redeeming hand. And the second level of application, the horizontal level of application is the same. If we commit as a church to being prophets and priests for one another, we must understand that the hand that reaches into the net is not meant to hurt it's meant to help we must understand that as we reach our hand into the net to help that the other person caught in their sins and trespasses need us to restore them gently and they're going to freak out a little bit and we may get a fish hook in our thumb 
but what it means to be in a community that God has created is that we both point out that people are caught in their nets and we help them get out. Even if that means a little bit of thumb pain along the way. I'm praying in my own life and I'm praying for you that we through the power of Christ are made new so that we can bear both to one another and to the world a prophetic edge but also a priestly commitment to bear one another's burdens. That doesn't guarantee, by the way, a favorable result. Not at all. But it does guarantee our attempt at faithfulness. Our attempt to see, behold the example of Jesus and say, that's what I should be. And through Christ, through his substitutionary power, through his prophetic edge, I have shot, I have more than a shot of becoming who he's called me to be. Let's pray. Jesus.